I want to follow up on the teachings that Larry gave yesterday in the afternoon and the evening on forgiveness with the topic of equanimity and how that informs and influences our metta practice. And fundamentally, equanimity is a balance of the heart that is unstartled, unruffled, the heart and the mind that's grounded in wisdom, and it supports deep caring, and it influences our best appropriate response. So it's a very important quality in our practice. Heather talked about equanimity in her Dharma talk briefly as one of the seven factors of awakening, that which wakes us up to the truth of the way things are. And so equanimity could also be described as the expression of a heart which is calm, focused, attentive, interested, and connected. And in that list that Larry was mentioning last night, which uplifted my heart so much, I hope that it uplifted some of yours, this list of beautiful mental factors. And all of these support equanimity, and are supported by equanimity, these factors of faith, mindfulness, care in our actions, that we act in ways that are helpful, non-greed, non-hatred, neutrality of mind, compassion, joy. And all these manifest as wisdom, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. One of the metaphors I quite like about the term equanimity is it's like a parent. It's like the wise parent that you either had or that you wished you had, that we can cultivate in this moment, that raises their child well. Equanimity. And my current favorite image of equanimity comes from a documentary movie called March of the Penguins. How many of you remember March of the Penguins? It came out several years ago. I figured a lot of people had seen it, and it's okay if you haven't, because I'll describe the image that for me, in this time of my practice in my life, really um, articulates the quality of equanimity. March of the Penguins is about this colony of emperor penguins who live in Antarctica, and basically the story of their lives. It's also the story of our lives, for sure. So they live on this huge slab of ice, and they go through the seasons, and they go through the seasons of their life cycle. But the seasons of Antarctica, of course, are incredibly harsh and extreme and intense. So when it comes late fall, early winter, the they all go to a special place on the ice that they've been going for generations of penguins. And the mothers lay their eggs. And then with great respect and trust in the unfolding of things, they leave their eggs with the father penguins. And so the father penguins, you know, emperor penguins are, you know, they're big. They're like sometimes even three feet tall, right? And they're standing there in this pod in the winter Arctic wind. I have no idea how hard these winds are blowing. It's zero degrees, doesn't even begin to describe the temperature range there. And they're standing there in this huge pot of hundreds of father-to-be penguins 
while the mothers hike 70 miles across the glacier to the ocean where they get food to come back and feed these baby penguins if they're lucky enough to hatch. And if the mothers are lucky enough to survive that journey, not get eaten by a sea lion, and survive the journey back. Um, talk about equanimity. Yeah. These amazing things that we do in our lives. And we do them. We do them with trust and with faith sometimes. And that's such an act of trust and faith that they're doing. But the images of the fathers to be, and they're standing there three feet tall, they've got their little wings, and the egg is under their little pouch. They've got all this fur, especially in their belly area. And they, they sort of put the egg on their feet, and they stand for months, only moving occasionally. And they move to move around so that the ones on the outside get to the inside, and the ones on the inside get to the outside. And they're doing this little penguin shuffle, 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 right? With these eggs, balanced. They're babies to be, balanced on their feet. And the mothers go, and if they're lucky enough to come back, they come back, and they switch. And the fathers have not been having anything to eat for, you know, up to three months. And they hike 70 miles across the same piece of glacier, hopefully don't get eaten by a sea lion, and come back, and the baby has hatched. And then maybe the baby has survived those first weeks, and maybe the baby hasn't. And they care. They're not in charge. The unfolding is not up to them, and they care. And they keep doing just the right things to support life, knowing that, you know, death is, is also there and life is uncertain. And so sometimes when I'm getting blown by the winds of life these days, I just think of myself as a penguin, you know, <laughs> sitting on this little egg, and sometimes the egg is my heart. You know, and it's getting blown by all the winds of, of you know, judgment and different emotions and different life events and, and the heart's just getting buffeted by cold and wind and all this. And then I imagine kind of this, the Arctic sun coming out and it's warm and there's another penguin that's got my back and I just keep this image with me. Sometimes the egg is my heart. Sometimes the egg is the world. You know? And I'm there doing what I can to may the world, you know, may my community be protected and safe knowing that I can't control the results of that, but that I can still stand with others and hold that egg and care deeply. These are all images of equanimity, you know, of equilibrium, equipose, grace. Sometimes I think of equanimity as kind of a quiet awe oh, in the midst of experience, just awe. Oh. And those penguins, they're not indifferent to their babies-to-be. You know, it's, re- it's really uncertain what's going to happen. And Heather Martin talked about one of the near enemies, so-called, of equanimity being indifference or a kind of subtle disconnect. I think another modern-day near enemy of equanimity is, is kind of the teenage voice going, whatever, we, we all have that teenage voice, even if we didn't grow up in that cultural milieu. 
whatever, just means, oh, it's all a little too much, a little too something, can't quite connect. I don't see those penguins that way. Subarctic winds. I can't imagine. You know? And some of the stories that I hear about our lives, the amount of adversity, the amount of beauty, I can't imagine. You know, and sometimes people hear about my life and they hear about the amount of adversity and the amount of beauty and they say, I can't imagine. And yet we do it. We stand on our eggs, you know. We hold them. So in this talk, I want to speak some about a few different aspects of equanimity. A few things which make equanimity sometimes challenging to embody and to practice. A few equanimity practices that support our metta practice. And, you know, why developing this kind of state of heart and body and mind benefits us and supports us. The first aspect of equanimity that I want to speak about is the aspect of karma, which is a word that is overused in our culture and a bit under-understood. And the translation of the word karma, which we use so casually now in popular culture, simply translates as action. We're all making actions all the time. And what it's standing for, this word karma, is the law of cause and effect. The law that um, things have causes and that they have results, which we've been talking about a lot in the teachings the last 24 hours. And it's based on the understanding that we're all connected and that everything is connected. And there's a level of interdependence that is easy to see, and there's a level of interdependence which is so nuanced that the Buddha actually suggested that we not try to figure it out because it can bring our mind to a lot of uh, disturbance and, and even craziness, he said. But that doesn't mean that we can't still hold the teaching in our hearts and learn from it. One of the ways that the Buddha talked about this that I really liked, this teaching on interdependence or how things are conditioned, is this. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. So, you know, you can fill in the blank with the this and the that, and it's interesting because the experience of living with things as dependently conditioned, in any given moment, all these different factors are coming in from the past and meeting the present conditions simultaneously. And where they actually meet is in our minds and in our hearts. So what that means is that the experiences that we have in our minds and our hearts and the experiences that we have in our lives are neither um, a word that's 
they're not deterministic, which means that somebody didn't plan it long ago and there's no change possible in the flow of events. We know that. But they're also not random. Um, there's great influence in our conditioning and our habits about how things unfold. So I'll give you a really down-to-earth meta-retreat example that people have been sharing versions of in questions and in interviews, practice discussions. Um, so you're sending loving kindness to your difficult person, right? And one of the flavors that arises that needs to get seen and honored while you're doing that is anger, right? Anger arises. It starts bubbling up, and there's these little thoughts. I can't believe they did that, you know. If only they had done that differently. This is really all their, their fault, or, you know, they really hurt me. Why can't they change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Any of us could fill in the blank here, um, If it hasn't arisen for you today, it's arisen sometime in your life. And we have all these choices in that moment, but the choices are influenced by all the other things that have ever happened to us, right? So we can get into these feedback loops that are just habit patterns and a really, really important place to actually turn and bring our loving kindness back to ourselves. So one habit pattern when we're sending to a difficult person and anger arises and we get in a funk about it is to get on a feedback loop of blaming them. I'm telling ourselves endlessly the story of what happened over and over and creating a case about why we're right and why we're wrong. And we do that. That's okay. We do that sometimes. Another feedback loop we get into is that we see all of a sudden, oh, you know, anger Anger's arising, and we see it, but then we turn around and do the feedback loop of judging ourselves, and we turn the anger inward. We go on and on about what a terrible person we are, and we've been here for a whole week, and wishing loving kindness, and why can't I have some loving kindness for this person who is totally irritating me? You know, there must be something wrong with me. So we do that to ourselves, and again, uh, turning that wishing well back, going, oh, honey, you're in pain. This is a habit. It's conditioned by every other time I've ever done it and by the current circumstances that I'm sending loving kindness to a difficult person and anger just arose. It all came together. Here it is. Can I wish myself well? And in that moment, that's kind of another feedback loop that we just see the anger and turn and go, oh, I'm in pain. I wish myself well. It's complicated. We don't need to figure it out. It's just important to know that the mind of equanimity is a mind that sees that things are dependent on other things and that past habits influence today and that how we respond to this moment influences the future. That's what's important to develop a relationship with, I think, more than anything else. The Buddha has another quote that I quite love about how this whole process gets generated and how it creates a self and how we can dismantle it in a moment of loving kindness. The thought becomes the word. The word transforms into the deed. The deed hardens into the character. The character manifests as the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care. And let them spring from love, out of respect for all beings. 
That's how it gets created, and that's how we dissolve the creation into a new beginning, a new possibility. There are actually traditional phrases and non-traditional phrases of equanimity. Each of these Brahma-vihara practices that we've been talking about can actually be trained in on their own. And for me, when I first began metta practice, and as I was explaining to you the other night, the, the story of coming onto my first long retreat, just after my mother died, and so they're saying, I think you should do metta practice. What became clear to me very quickly was that without a ground of equanimity that could hold the joys and sorrows of my heart and my life, loving kindness wasn't so available. I just get swept away by these storms of thoughts and emotions and hopes and fears. And so very early on in my practice, I actually began saying uh, formal equanimity phrases alongside the metta phrases. And I would do these very long meditation retreats, so there was time to do all that. Uh, On a retreat of this length, it feels very important just to stay with the metta phrases and imbue them and invite this quality of equanimity to be there, to celebrate it when it comes. But I did want to share with you some of what they are, because it gives the spirit of the quality A very traditional set of the phrases is beings are owners of their karma. Their happiness and suffering depend on their actions less than on my wishes for them. It's kind of sobering. A non-traditional set of phrases that I've used a lot that I quite like is I have my path, you have your path, Your happiness and suffering depend on your choices, and I care. It's just, and I care. Because it's not an indifference, it's a caring. Realizing that no matter how much we can support someone else, we can't walk their path for them. They walk their own path. And it's very, very hard to let go and let them do that over and over and over again. It's not one letting go. It's over and over. Another equanimity phrase that I have sometimes included in my metta phrases is this phrase, may I trust in the unfolding. May I trust in the unfolding. So for many, many years of my metta practice, that was one of my metta phrases. And I knew that that was the phrase that carried the quality of trust, openness, ease with things as they are. I'll offer that to you as well. Another quality of equanimity is the quality of impartiality or equality. And what it means is talking about the universal nature of our experience, and it's saying, okay, fundamentally, beyond all of our stories and our life events, um, we're the same. We all wish to be happy. We all wish to avoid suffering. 
We're all impacted by the first noble truth. We all have to come to terms with that. Um, And so there's an equality in that that allows us to see beyond the differences in our backgrounds and our stories and say, oh, you know, it's like that old saying that gets said over and over, can you stand in somebody else's shoes? And then we can turn that back to ourselves and say, oh, well, can I stand in my own shoes in this moment? Or am I standing off to the side a little bit? You know, can I be equal with all beings also is an important piece of this. A third aspect of equanimity is understanding that relationships change. It's an interpersonal aspect. And we've been referring to it a lot by saying that we're going through all these different meta categories, right? Self, mentor, good friend, familiar stranger, difficult person. And they're all outside of us, so-called. But of course, we carry all this in our own heart. We're our own good friend, we're our own mentor, we're our own difficult person, and sometimes we're completely neutral and uh, even bored with ourselves. So we carry this, and we also play all these roles in our lives. Are we fundamentally, you know, have goodness in our core? Yes. And what about that person that I'm the enemy to, you know, that I annoy? You know, I'm beating myself up and judging myself, but what about the person that I'm their most important mentor? You know, we're all these changing relationships. We're playing all these roles. And over the course of our lives, we've each done everything and been everyone in some little or large way. One real insight I had about that early in my practice I was talking about the precepts the first night, and I was talking about how we take a precept of not taking life, the first precept, and how wonderful it is to be in a community that's safe enough that we can have trust that no one here is going to take our life. Can we extend that same spirit to the ants who are homeless from the rain? And I had that insight on a, on a retreat early on in my practice when it was the middle of winter like this and it was raining and there was this colony of ants forming in my room. They started under the door and then they went up the wall and they filled the sink and then they fell out of the sink into all of my toiletries. And, you know, it's just this kind of takeover. And <laughs> out of habit, I started to wipe them away. That had been my habit. And I'm watching this. And as soon as I did a wipe, I thought, Wow, I just wiped out, you know, a lot of lives. And, and then I thought, well, they're annoying. <laughs> they're in my way. My, my, my. And so I'm about to wipe out some more. And I had this sudden insight, Heather, you know, you're, dri- you're driving a colony of beings to extinction. And I just stopped. And I wept. And I just, I realized, you know, we all play every role. So often the question gets, that gets asked is some question like, well, how do I wish well to Hitler? You know? Well, I was just wiping out a whole colony of beings there. You know, I'm not saying I was being Hitler. But it's like, oh, you know, we have the seeds of everything in our hearts. And according to our lives and our choices and what's happened to us and then what's done to us, this arises. You know? So we understand that relationships change and that we all carry every role in our hearts and that we have choices about which roles we're going to reenact. 
Then there's this question about what disturbs our equanimity. And when our equanimity is disturbed, it's really hard to wish well to ourselves and others. So it's an important thing to investigate. And the first one won't surprise you at all. You've become experts on it in the last week. And that's, you know, the disturbing, sometimes they're called afflictive emotions because they are darts, like Larry was describing, and they just come and, you know, attack us. And there's this image of Siddhartha sitting under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment. And Mara, the the energies, the voices, the the beings, however you want to hold it, of that which holds us back from our awakening, that which clouds our minds, which are already awake, attacked and shot arrows and all in their fiery arrows. And I just imagine these arrows whizzing through the air, just flaming. you know, and I imagine how if that was happening to me, I would be ducking and you know, trying, to, trying to avoid the darts. But of course, Siddhartha sat still under that tree in a true posture of equanimity. And by meeting each dart of, you know, what are your darts? Self-judgment, fear, anger, sadness, hatred. You know what your darts are today. By meeting each of his darts with the spirit of loving kindness as the story goes they transformed into flowers and rained down at his feet as an object of beauty which I'm sure gladdened his heart as he continued his journey into full awakening it's a beautiful image so these disturbing emotions come and they throw us off balance and this is what we've been doing all week is getting caught and then refinding our equilibrium. And we refined it by remembering, oh, you know, sadness. And dropping in another phrase for the sadness or for the person we're wishing well to. Uh, we notice it by feeling it in the body. You know, and find our balance that way. Reground somatically. There's so many different ways we've been doing this here. more things that disturb our equanimity. Again, no surprise to any of us, and the Buddha talked about them quite a bit, but these visitors, these life events called birth, sickness, old age, and death. I think we can safely name these events, main events in our life. If we look at a whole life, at the end of a life, and say, well, what were the main events? Definitely birth, serious illness, aging, if we're lucky enough to do that. Uh, And death could be called main events. So important to include them in this. And they stir up all of our habit patterns and conditioned responses and afflictive emotions when we're not in a stage of open-hearted moment, which sometimes we're not in these circumstances. They're, you know, amazing, intense circumstances. So I'll tell a couple stories that I feel like really illustrate this quality of openness, kindness of of equanimity in the face of these life events. You know, and these life events are living in this room. In this room recently, we've had birth. You know, I know of at least one in the womb here in this room. And there's always one in the room. Always one in the womb. We've lost people recently. 
or during this retreat, we're working with illness and trying to bring kindness to that. Many of us. I have a friend who gave birth to a beautiful little girl a few years back, and she decided to have a home birth with a midwife. And so that happened. It was actually able to happen that the birth was at home. It was what she intended. It doesn't always work out that way. But it did work out that way for her. And it wasn't, there was no crisis during the birth, but the birth was very painful, as sometimes births are. It was her first child, which can sometimes be more challenging. And she's a long-term practitioner of meditation. And her midwife commented after the birth, she said, you know, I have delivered hundreds, if not thousands, of babies, and I've never been with someone whose shoulders were so relaxed, even during the height of the birth. There was a sense of ease and relaxation, even though the whole rest of the body was in contraction. For some reason, there was just ease in the shoulders. It's like, can we have a range that includes ease in the midst of a deep contraction and a huge life event? On the subject of sickness and death, I actually want to bring somebody into the room whom some of you have heard of and some of you probably know. And her name is Darlene Cohen. And she's a priest at San Francisco Zen Center for the last decade and a long-term practitioner there. Since 2006, she has been on the journey with ovarian cancer and had some fairly serious other illnesses before that. And this Wednesday at 1.15 a.m., she passed on. And it's, you know, it's a bright light in the Dharma world who is no longer with us in body. She is supported and touched with her teachings and her writings and her work with people with chronic illness and pain. She's touched so many thousands of people. So I want to call her in here to, to honor her life and her work in the face of sickness and adversity because she continued teaching right up to the end of her life. And the stories that I've been hearing about her passing have been so beautiful that she was surrounded by friends and family in the last days of her life and especially in the last hours of her life and, and present when she could be present with them and, and very connected And her husband, Tony, said that in her dying moments, he said, one moment she was breathing, and the next moment she was not breathing. It's just in, out. Some of us have had the great privilege in our lives to bear witness to something like that. And some of us have experienced the pain of a loved one who, because of all of the conditions, was unable to leave their life like that. There was pain, there was struggle. 
I want to read something that Darlene wrote about equanimity in the face of illness. How do we develop this appreciation of things just as they are, especially if we are sick and in pain? We must treat our pain gently, respectfully, not resisting it, but living with it. When we resist it, we need to treat that resistance with respect too. And then she continues, It is only in the present that we can cultivate the mental stability that is required to practice non-preference for the conditions of our lives. That's equanimity, non-preference for the conditions of our lives, combined with when we resist it, treating that with kindness and respect too. To me, that's a beautiful definition of equanimity. A third thing that can often disturb our equanimity, I've been referring to loosely all the way through this reflection, is the experience that's called in the Buddhist tradition the worldly winds. So they're winds. And the winds are birth and death, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and fame and disrepute. So I'm sure out of all of those, you've been blown by one or the other on this retreat and in your life. It's, again, one of these equality experiences that we all get to share being human beings living a life. And because they're dualities, there's this aspect of hope and fear that goes along with them. We hope that one won't come. You know, we fear that it will When something good happens, we hope it will stay. We fear it will go. And so then I think of those as complementary winds, the winds of hope and fear that go with these winds of our inner and outer lives. And they're dualities. So because they're dualities, they emphasize the split between self and other. And so then we have this separation, which makes it harder for our loving kindness to flow. It's an important place to notice when it comes up in our practice. And it's a really rich place to work, you know. Let yourself get blown around a little. See how that feels. Use our good tools. Come back to some equal poise and go, oh yeah, this feels like this. I feel like Dr. Martin Luther King was such um, inspiration in this area himself and and the entire community of thousands that worked with him were blown by so many of these internal and external winds. And so in honor of his birthday, which is today, I want to read a piece from him on this topic of how to bring love to these winds of birth and death and gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. So he's talking about his philosophy on love. And he often referred to the Greek word agape. And this is the kind of love that people should have for everyone, he said, including their enemies. It is more than romantic love. It is more than friendship. It is understanding. 
creative, redemptive goodwill toward all people. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. These are his words. I've seen too much to hate, to want to hate myself. And I've seen hate on the faces of too many sheriffs, too many white citizens, too many clansmen of the South to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, hate is too great of a burden to bear. Somehow, we must be able to stand up before our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is as much of a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. So throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit, culturally or otherwise, for integration, and we will still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. How do we do that? <laughs> you know, it's so inspiring. It, it opens us up to our greatest potential and can call up our demons as well, you know. But how do we do that? So some practices, you know, some, some steps for the beginning, the middle, and the end. Larry, in his talk yesterday, was talking about Vedna, or the tones, the three generalized tones of our experience, that all of our experience can somehow fall into one of three categories, that of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. We call that neutral. One interesting way to bring in the spirit of equanimity into our metta practice is to focus on this neutral vedana, or feeling tone. So say we're sending loving kindness to our difficult person, whoever that might be, ourselves, someone else, and a great sadness and grief arises, the pain, you know, that pain. And while we can notice that, we can feel in the body, We can say, oh, I'm in pain, send loving kindness, outwards, inwards, those are all incredible tools. Sometimes as a stabilizing into equanimity, it can be quite interesting to, in the midst of that, especially when it's really big, to just take a breath. And sometimes I'll say to myself, honey, you're in pain, take a breath. Okay, take a breath. That invites me to take a deeper breath, which automatically helps the nervous system settle creates that settling quality. 
that equanimity carries and just notice something like your feet, some place that your body's making contact with the earth. And often that area, unless we have an injury, so some place that's making contact that doesn't have an injury, um, it's fairly neutral. You know, it's just contact. And so then we can remember, oh, I'm resting on the earth and the earth can hold this. If the earth could bear witness to Siddhartha's enlightenment and transformation into the Buddha, the earth can hold this feeling moving through. You know? So it's kind of using that neutral Vedna and earth, the earth element, as a grounding. Another equanimity phrase that I sometimes add in my practice when there is no equanimity is one that is shared among many religious traditions, and it's just this phrase, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Just reminding myself of impermanence. Then there's the interpersonal levels. And a lot of people have asked me in the practice discussions, okay, I'm working with this person. You know, it doesn't have to be the difficult person. Sometimes it was the good friend. I'm working with this person in my practice, but I need to have a conversation with them when I leave the retreat. I need to make a change in our relationship, something. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Sadly, I'm I'm not going to tell you what to do in the next moment. Uh, But I will share with you a little practice that has helped myself and many other people tremendously. And it's something that you'll probably recognize the spirit of it when I say it. And this practice arose for me in my life. I use it every day. And I've shared it with enough people that there's plenty of people using it all the time now. And it arose through an interaction with one of my students um, a long time ago. And in my very first years of teaching, I primarily taught teenagers these practices of loving kindness and insight meditation. And I had this one student I started working with when, when he was 14. He was very ardent about his practice. He was super into it. He meditated every day. Totally impressed me. And when he was around 19, and he's in his mid-20s now, um, he came to me and he said, Heather, I am pulling my hair out about my relationship with my father. You know? And I knew that he had a close relationship with his father and that the relationship was fundamentally sound. He said, he's driving me nuts. He's trying to run my life. And he's trying to tell me what to do. And he won't get off my back in this big story. On and on and on and on. And I looked at him and I said, oh. I mean, first we just talked about how hard it is. This is really hard. And we had a long-term relationship. So at some point I looked at him and I felt comfortable saying, you know, Something occurs to me. He said, Heather, what? You know, he's looking for any kind of advice. And I said, well, I said, when I think about you and your father, it occurs to me that you're both playing your roles perfectly. And he said, what? (laughs) No, no, he's not. He's not doing what I want him to do. You know, on and on and on. And I just smiled. And and he comes up, he's like, why are you smiling? 
I said, because you're playing your role perfectly. And he stopped. And he took a breath. And he said, oh, I am. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, we all are. You know, and it was just this moment where I realized this is so useful, this little line. We're playing our roles perfectly. And I use it all the time with my partner, with my bosses, uh, with friends. It's like, oh, they're playing their role perfectly. They're being perfectly their self according to everything. And I don't have to like it. I can still love them. You know? And then I'm playing my role perfectly according to everything that's ever happened to me. And it doesn't always look so good, and sometimes it looks fantastic, but it's okay. That's equanimity practice. I really like little phrases to use in life. I I call them, in in the Vipassana tradition, I call them creative mental notes, because a mental note is just usually one word describing experience. So I make them creative. And this is kind of another equanimity one. And it's my most recent one that I'm practicing with. And it came from a teacher that I was studying with in Dharamsala in India this fall. Her name is Geshe Kelsen Wangmo, and she is a nun, German by birth, who's been living near His Holiness the Dalai Lama's temple and studying under him since she was 18 years old. And she's actually one of the very, very youngest Western women to complete her Geshe degree. And a Geshe degree takes about 18 years. It's like several PhDs in a row in Buddhism. So she's an incredible scholar. She's also an incredible example of equanimity because even though us Western students call her Geshe-la, which is a term of respect, um, acknowledging her finishing this degree, formally in the tradition, because, um, because of lack of opportunity for women, they're actually, she just got this degree, and they're not formally calling her Geshe-la yet. And she has such equanimity with that. She said, you know, this is hundreds of years of oppression and conditioning and it is working itself out but I can't expect that the very year that I'm one of the first people to have this happen that it's just going to change like that I have to have some patience and I feel the respect from the elders in the community as they work this out it's like wow that's equanimity that's long-term view it's not excusing anything but it's not it's taking her seat and teaching her knowledge, um, and doing what needs to be done to move things forward with grace. She did a lot of teachings on equanimity, and one of her favorite phrases that I've taken on, right in the middle of a talk, it was just a random comment, she, she looked at us and she said, you know, to you, I am other. To you, I am other. And it just takes us out of, you know, the me, 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 me syndrome. It's like, oh yeah, it's all through my lens. It's all through my glasses of how the world is. But to you, I am other. And you have a different set of lenses. And can we share this life?
Geshe Kelsen Wangmo also taught us a beautiful practice. It's a reflection on equanimity. And she said, you know, regardless of whether you believe in past lives or not, don't worry about that. So this is a traditional Asian setting. So it's something that's talked about in that setting. She said, don't worry about that. She said, imagine that you could go back in your mind into history. You know, and those of us that love history, this is a really fun reflection to do in your life. And go back through history and imagine that you carried different roles. You know, imagine that you were um, a mother giving birth in Africa 200 years ago. Imagine that you were a man dying in Yugoslavia of this disease. Imagine that you were a cobbler. Imagine that you were a butcher. Imagine that you um, took care of a large family. Imagine that there was a huge death in your family. Imagine, imagine, imagine. And go back in time and use, what she said to us was, use what you know about history and the points that ring true to you and imagine yourself in that time and place. Step into those shoes. And realize that on this planet now, there are billions of people that are all in those shoes. Might be a different manifestation in 2011, but all still those same roles. Um, And she suggested that we do that to open our hearts so that we could hold the world in our hearts. It's a fun thing to do out in our lives when everything gets really boxed in and, you know, the events that are happening just become so consuming that there's nothing more than our little life. It's like, oh, let's get really big in time and space. And then this last piece is about the benefits of cultivating equanimity, which, of course, I've been talking about all the way through. And I want to bring in two Buddhist women that I feel like illuminate this quality in their lives and and in their teachings. One of them is quite on the front of the world stage right now, and and the other one you may or may not know. I'll talk about her first. Her name is Jetsuma Tenzin Palmo, and she's best known in our community as the English nun who took robes in the Tibetan tradition when she was very, very young. She's the first Western woman to be ordained by His Holiness the Karmapa in that tradition. And she spent 12 years sitting in a cave at 13,200 feet. So you might know her story from A Cave in the Snow. She's long been one of my Dharma heroes, and I was very privileged to get to visit with her several times during this trip. Um, I journeyed to where she was. And the interesting thing, most people know that part of Jetsuma Tenzin Palma's story, that she sat in a cave, and I mean, you can imagine the conditions that she dealt with there, you know, in the middle of the Himalayan winter. But what people know less about is what she's doing currently. And the interesting thing is that even though her deepest longing in this life is for retreat practice, she feels like that's the best way that she has to give to this world in this life for her, When she was done with that series of retreats, she was asked by her teacher to open a nunnery for young 
Tibetan girls, uh, Ladakhi girls. Ladakhi is the Indian Himalaya. And, and, and other young girls who wanted to study in the tradition and didn't have a monastery available to them. And she's done that, and the monastery is built, and there's a whole group of them, more than 50 of them, they're now practicing, and she's heading that monastery. And she's doing this because there's a tradition that is dying out, a tradition of women called the um, Togdemmas, and they're a tradition of yoginis that... It's an oral tradition that's passed down from person to person. And during the um, invasion of Tibet by the Chinese, this whole tradition, both for men and women, has almost been completely wiped out. But there are no more women in this tradition left. And her teacher said to Jetsama, please, please start a nunnery and restart this tradition. Um, Our male... Uh, Togdens are are getting old. They're going to die. This is the end of this. And she's doing this, even though her longing is to sit long retreat for the rest of her life. And I was there, and, you know, I went to visit her, and she was in the middle of this conflict between two groups of the girls, and it was a class issue that was going on with a new group of girls who were um, coming from very poor families, and there was a group of girls from wealthy families that were already there in robes, and there was, you know, they were trying to work out class differences in this monastery. And she was mediating, and all the parents had showed up. They're having this big meeting right after I left, and the fathers were sitting there, you know, in their traditional Ladakhi dress. And, you know, there she is right in the center of it um, with such grace and such acceptance of, you know, she said, these girls don't know. This is how they've been raised. We need to bring these teachings to them so they understand there can be another way. She was so gentle with the fathers. So I feel like, you know, it's like through, ex- through her experience of seeing that conditions are dependent and seeing that we're all in this together, she could celebrate the differences. And I'll read a short quote from her that talks about this. We all come from many different backgrounds, and in this lifetime we have very different lessons to learn and different experiences which we need to undergo to help us grow. If one considers us all as like little children, then what we are trying to do is to mature. And all of us are maturing at our own rates. Certain experiences will mature one person and not another. So it's not that everybody has to do things the same way, or that this is the right thing to do and this is not the right thing to do. For different people at different times and in different places, there are infinite amounts of experiences which have to be undergone, and some things which don't need to be undergone at all. But the goal is to really understand the mind, to bring clarity into the mind, to tame our wild emotions, our wild thoughts. Along with that, to open up the heart with loving kindness and compassion so that we really do experience the happiness and suffering of others. That kind of maturity that acknowledges that things are impermanent and that we all have different experiences.
the second Buddhist woman that I want to bring in, Sylvia brought in during her talk, and that's Ansan Suki. Another one of my Dharma heroes. And when I think of her, I think of the image of a tree that's rooted in the ground. And, you know, the winds blow the tree and the sun shines on the tree and the birds nest in the tree. You know, the tree gets little blights and diseases and heals from it or they spread. All these things happen. But the shade of the tree is shading down this metta and this compassion to everything under its umbrella. And she is holding the whole Burmese people and the whole world, really, I feel, under that umbrella. I just think of that image when I think of her. And so I'll read a quote from her that feels like it's in the theme of this teaching. This was in a recent Time magazine article. You might have seen it. My very top priority, she said, is for people to understand that they have the power to change things themselves. I want to do as much as I can while I'm free, but we can never know how much time we have. It's a powerful statement, both in terms of her imprisonment and being out of imprisonment, in terms of we don't know how much time we have in our lives. I want to do what I can while I'm free, but we can never know how much time we have. One of the most important parts of equanimity for me is a sense of trust. And really the best word for it is refuge that our lives unfold as they do, and the most wonderful and horrible things happen to us. And if they don't happen to us, they happen to someone near to us. And if they don't happen to someone near to us, they happen somewhere in the world. And as we become more and more a global community, it touches us. And equanimity is that grounded, spacious caring that says, I can be with this. I can be with you. close with one of my favorite poems by W.S. Merwin. It's called We Say Thank You. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouth full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions. Back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging, after funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether we knew them or not, we are saying thank you. Looking up from tables, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you in doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, 
unchanged, we go on saying, thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, with our lost feelings, we are saying thank you. With the force falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, with the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster with nobody listening. We are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. In that spirit, I thank you for your practice. Whether you think it is good enough or the worst retreat you've ever had. (laughs) You know, whether it's clear and focused and open or just a long series of contractions, I say thank you. Thank you for doing this practice. Thank you for taking these teachings into your heart and making them your own. And of course, thank you so very much for the the kindness of your attention. (laughs) We will go down and enjoy some tea together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.